Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent. Podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speakers' secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. During this new episode of Fund Series, we are sitting down with Nathan Shahar, founder and CEO of Standard Carbon. Nathan's vision is that every fossil fuel facility can be retrofitted to become carbon neutral. He builds standard carbon so that current CO2 emissions from any source can be turned back into fuel with renewable energy. I was excited to speak with Nathan, whose powerful belief in the human potential has propelled him in his career. As a father of eight children, he believes that every human has tremendous capacity to innovate, create and bring value to the world. Armed with this belief, he embarked on a journey that led him to found Standard Carbon as a solution to humanity's biggest challenge. Specifically, Nathan understands the importance of creating technology that is accessible to the world's poor as only when we fight poverty, we can fight climate change. In this episode, we will learn the ins and outs of the carbon sequestration market and process, how it works for non-scientists and how Capture GHG compares to the carbon market process. Nathan also walks us through the solution to carbon sequestration, its scalability, market value, and how it compares to other solutions on the market. As a player in the GSG sequestration market, Nathan offers a thorough run-through of the key challenges of the sector and a clear explanation of the viability and significance of a solution to climate change. During the second part of the talk, Nathan offers a few tips for fundraising and gaining traction for your startup. He also explains how he has managed a work-life balance as the CEO of a tech startup and a father of eight children, and what advice he has for other founders. Nathan, welcome to the show. Hi, Nathan. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and learn more about what you are up to with Carbon, uh, Standard Carbon. So welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, it's really a pleasure to uh, talk to you today. So before we start, that's uh, the tradition now on the show. Can you give us a 30 second introduction about Standard Carbon? Yes. Uh, Standard Carbon, we take 
uh, carbon dioxide uh, exhaust emissions from any source, power plant, it could be an automobile, anything that burns hydrocarbons that has emissions of carbon dioxide, we take that carbon dioxide and we turn it back into fuel using uh, renewable electricity. That's what we do. Uh, and our vision is to be able to retrofit any existing uh, combustion facility that's producing carbon dioxide to make it carbon neutral. So let's start from the top. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about your personal story and background? I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do besides uh, building standard carbon? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or like your best self? As I always ask, like, who is Nathan? Uh, well, I, I'm, uh, I'm on my second marriage. Uh, I have uh, eight children, seven children from my first marriage, one child from my second marriage, just my son, three-month-old son. Um, I was born in London, grew up my whole life in uh, New Jersey, in New York City, and I moved to Israel uh, six years ago. Um, and my, uh, you know, my, my, my focus has, has, uh, I grew up in a very political home. Uh, my family was always very active in terms of dealing with how we can, how we can make the world better. Um, and so, you know, for me, uh, what's most exciting for me is, you know, I, 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 I am pro humanity pro-life. So I, I get excited about things that uh, make life richer for people. So, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I have a lot of kids. <laughs> you know, if you might have, Elon Musk recently uh, tweeted about how he thought people should have more children. I think it's a good idea. I think every person is an infinite universe of potential and ideas and, and contribution. And so, um, I'm excited about, you know, trying to solve problems for people. So that's... Tell us a bit more if you have like, uh, you know, any passion on the side, uh, you know, besides building a company, which is a lot, uh, taking care of your children, which is even more. Uh, and I'm a taking dad myself, so... This is everything, yes. Taking care of my children has always been, you know, the, the, the biggest uh, by far. You know, I have my young, my oldest is 11. So my, my biggest passion and the thing I probably devote most of my time to is my family by far for quite some time. But... Um, somehow I've managed to build a career in the past 15 years as well, which has resulted in me starting a company. I've always been, always been very focused on the environment. Uh, I've always, I love hiking, bicycling, uh, outdoors, camping, things like that. Um, you know, for, so for me, you know, the, the, a, a really fun, uh, weekend is, you know, I could just disappear into the desert and sleep under the stars and you know th that type of thing my degree was in environmental engineering i've always worked in this field i always knew i was going to work somewhere in this field of trying to address the negative side of the industrial revolution so to speak and um yeah i mean i i i enjoy i enjoy nature so i've always been passionate about that and and that's bit some extent to where standard carbon comes from um so Maybe t tell us a bit uh, more about, you know, those different like work and life experiences prior to the, the launch of Standard Carbon. I mean, what did you learn along the, along the way that in a way you would not have if you had a different journey? I mean, what did you believe that gave you an edge to start a okay, company? So, uh, so I'll tell you, actually, it's interesting. So I've been, um, my, my, my first, my oldest son, son 11, was born. Uh, the week that my uh, ex-wife and I graduated from Columbia University. And um, at the time, uh, she was starting a doctoral program to become a psychologist. And so as a result, uh, one of us had to be sort of the parent that was more available to deal with nannies, babysitting, daycare, and things like that. Because as you might know, a doctoral program is all-consuming. And uh, so... That was me. So from the beginning, uh, my career was what you would call, you know, like mommy track, you know, the, the opposite of what Sheryl Sandberg says in her book, Lean In. I, I was, 
I was the guy that was trying to find ways to sort of get out of additional work at the places I was working. I was very early on in my career found I actually switched jobs to an inferior company just so I could work from home to be more focused on my kids. Now, the funny thing is because of that, I was always trying to think of how I could work for myself to have that flexibility to make my own hours and not have the pressure of having to be sitting in an office reporting to somebody. Um, and so I was always involved in different types of startup ventures, not necessarily creating a new technology like this, but um, I, I run an independent engineering firm in New York. I'm a licensed engineer in New York now for several years. And where I probably might have made more money uh, had I stayed sort of on the track of working in a big company, it was really because of the kids and because I was really hands-on and had to be <laughs> for many years uh, with the kids, I had to start my own, I had to work for myself. And working for myself really made it not such a big leap so that when the idea for Standard Carbon emerged, um, I already was used to going out there, whether it was managing a business, sales, you know, every aspect of it was not intimidating. I had been working as an engineer, as a salesman, raising money from banks or talking to investors, every possible side of uh, building an idea, finding people, subcontractors, employees was totally familiar to me. Um, and I don't think that would have ever happened had my ex-wife been more available to watch our children in the early years. I think it was really 100% because, you know, I, I would probably have had just a very comfortable, I'd probably still be in New York, frankly. I'd probably have a very comfortable job working, you know, at a big company in New York, making a lot of money, very happy. Um, I would have never had to go out on my own the way I did if it wasn't for the fact that there are times where, you know, you just need to drop everything and go deal with your son or your daughter at three o'clock in the afternoon or 11 o'clock in the morning. And I wanted to be able to do that. So the, that, that, that was the key piece. It really was. So, but I, I feel you, I'm also that myself and I know uh, how, how things can go, uh, can, can become hectic when you have uh, those uh, little like bundle of joy uh, with you. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's the way. And it's true that uh, being entrepreneurs uh, can, uh, can help to, to manage all of that and juggle with, uh, with all of that. So in all of this, like, um, you know, what was your driver to jump into the, the climate tech industry, as we call it today? Uh, any specific haha moments that you can uh, recall or would define as such? So I, I mean, I, I always knew I was going to work somewhere in, in, I don't know about climate tech, but in the field. My, my bachelor's and, and master's degrees are in environmental engineering. Um, and so as I grew up, you know, uh, as a outdoors all the time, backpacking, that type of thing. Uh, and so it was always my passion. Um, the aha moment for standard carbon for producing a new technology in this field was uh, New York City's local law 97 as part of the Climate Mobilization Act that they passed in 2019. That was a revolution uh, because they suddenly imposed the most expensive price on carbon dioxide on New York City real estate, on buildings of anywhere in the world by far. Uh, and all of the customers that I had been and still do service were uh, facing a titanic wave of uh, fines, penalties, if they couldn't find a way to make their buildings more energy efficient. And that was very, very difficult to do with the normal tools that I had prescribed for these customers, for these buildings. And so that was when I said, okay, we really need to find more of a technological solution. Um, and that was the start. That was really the okay. start of the whole process. So before we go uh, into the, the details of the genesis, as you already uncovered a little bit of uh, standard carbon, we'd like to, to zoom out as we uh, usually do and kind of understand like the, the overall context that uh, you're surfing on. I mean, let's try to, 
to get your, your overview on the, the so-called uh, carbon capture landscape today. And I'd like to start with your opinion regarding this larger question. I mean, why is it critical to, to capture carbon in order to, to slow down uh, climate change? I mean, maybe we can cover with you like a little bit like the, the global amount of greenhouse gases needed to, to be captured. What are the existing solutions? Uh, how much is currently deployed in terms of sequestration capabilities? And, and who are the main players? I mean, who needs the most right. uh, this kind of like solution right now in terms of industries? So, okay, like there are a lot of parts to that question. Let's start off with, um, I quoted Elon Musk. I really thought he had a great response in this where he said that putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at the rate that we're doing is probably the dumbest experiment in history. Um, we don't know precisely what impact the quantity of carbon dioxide we're putting in the atmosphere will have. Uh, it might not be anywhere near as urgent as some people say. It could be a lot more urgent. We don't know. The world is a very complex system and it's very hard to simulate a global climate accurately. However, we do know that injecting infinite quantities of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere is uh, ultimately going to have a very big impact on the climate that is probably not going to be positive. We also know that um, fossil fuels are finite. So if we value uh, human civilization continuing longer than the store of fossil fuels we have available, then at some point we will need to move beyond fossil fuels. So moving to a sustainable energy economy is inevitable. And limiting carbon dioxide emissions in the meantime is also uh, you know, an obviously intelligent idea. Now, where is it most urgent? I would say it's, it's most urgent um, in, well, look, it's important to bear in mind that uh, fossil fuels have been the greatest good for human liberty in the history of human civilization. You know, the, the industrial revolution that started in England uh, really 300 years ago with the first steam engines and coal, uh, it's not a uh, coincidence that that coincided with the growth of democracy in Great Britain, middle-class society in Great Britain, and then it spread from there to North America and Europe and from North America and Europe to uh, the rest of the countries in the OECD, the Far East, Japan, et cetera. And we hope, we very, very, very much hope to see that same transition happen in China and in India, in uh, Africa and elsewhere. So um, civilization is a good thing for human liberty, for advancing beyond what was we had before, which was uh, feudalism, serfdom, basically a few rich people and everybody else was a slave. So we want energy, however, um, it if it's not affordable, if that energy is not affordable, then that transition can't take place. So oh, what I'm getting to here to answer your question, where is carbon capture most urgent? I think carbon capture is most urgent in developing economies where they need to make the transition to a first world economy uh, for a basic human need that, you know, it is it is, in my opinion, cruelty. It's unethical to suggest that for the sake of the climate, uh, a family in the Congo or in uh, Bangladesh should live in poverty because we want to save the climate. No, they deserve the same standard of living as somebody living in Denmark or in uh, California. So then the question becomes, how can we get them that first world standard of living which underpins, as I said, it's not just uh, cars and iPhones, it's, it's democracy, it's human rights. It's literally everything that we hold as valuable as a society depends on a certain level of prosperity. How do we get them that prosperity without destroying the planet? And so carbon capture of some form is the cheapest way and the most understood way to do that. It's not necessarily the best. Um, there are many uh, professors at Stanford uh, that will tell you we should just go to a hydrogen-based fuel cell economy uh, and we should 
close all fossil fuel and combustion plants and get rid of the internal combustion engine and go into this you know beautiful high-tech future of fuel cells and hydrogen and everything else and um you know look they're, they're a lot smarter than me i guess so maybe they're correct but uh the the economics of that first of all those technological solutions don't really exist yet to buy uh even if we wanted to second of all they're insanely expensive so if instead i can go to a cement factory in bangladesh and i say look keep producing the cement which you need to produce for houses and roads and trains and everything else as i said that's critical for human civilization but we're going to add this carbon capture element to it which will really not add much to the cost at all uh and in as a result you'll be carbon neutral that's that's something that's realistic that's a realistic ask that's something that is within the realm of possibility that could be financed by uh the OECD countries uh to to achieve um you know i think that the biggest in my opinion you asked about passion in my opinion the biggest issue in the world today is not climate it's poverty because poverty is what drives uh dictatorships it drives cruelty slavery all of the really horrible things that we see in the world are caused by poverty poverty is frankly what's causing the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest you know if we are in the Congo like if we really care about climate the first thing we should doing is why are we still chopping down our old growth rainforests in the Congo Southeast Asia and Brazil which are the single most important carbon sink on the planet you know before we talk about sucking uh, carbon dioxide out of the air in Iceland why don't we take that money and just pay people to not chop down a thousand year old trees in Brazil to make room for cattle farming which is just insanely environmentally destructive well the reason for that is those people in brazil are poor and they want a first world standard of living and the way they're going to get that from their perspective is by chopping down burning the rainforest so um what my focus the the reason why i think carbon capture is important is the any approach to climate absolutely must take into account the affordability for the people with the least amount of money to close that little part uh, maybe you can tell us a bit more about like uh, a quick, quick overview of like what are the the carbon capture solution existing today uh, for the people who are okay so so yes carbon capture solutions you have um i guess you could say you have three categories you have direct air capture which is to take take carbon out of the atmosphere itself like a tree so that's uh carbon engineering climeworks are the two most famous there are others as well and their focus is literally to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in its most dilute form at 0.3% uh, of the air and uh then store it somewhere then you have our carbon uh capture and storage um so an example that would be carbon clean and um a whole host of other companies that have been around for decades which will go to a cement factory or power plant whatever it is and they will attach to the flue gas and capture the carbon dioxide <coughs> and store it somewhere uh and then you have our carbon capture and reuse which is basically the category standard carbon is in and many of the other carbon capture companies like carbon clean aspire to be in this category where they want to capture the carbon dioxide from an existing combustion source and reuse that carbon dioxide for something um and a lot of and that may be to produce fuel so you have a closed loop on the carbon like what standard carbon is doing uh, others are using that carbon dioxide to produce cement or or other types of materials but the the ideal in my opinion what makes the most sense is carbon capture and uh reuse because it's very difficult to find places to store such large quantities of carbon dioxide but if we can find a productive use for it then um we've removed it from the system um 
So th those are the three categories of carbon capture that I'm aware of. Um, one of the big advantages of carbon to fuels, which is what standard carbon is focused on, is that we don't just capture the carbon dioxide emissions from the exhaust, we also remove the extraction of fossil fuels as well, because we produce fuel from the exhaust so that there's no longer a need to mine or drill for that fuel in the ground. So uh, <clears throat> it's an important distinction because um, uh, you might've known in the past year, there was a big controversy over the carbon index of blue hydrogen which is a, as opposed to gray or green hydrogen, where essentially they said blue hydrogen, where you do carbon capture on a traditional hydrogen production process is not that environmentally uh, positive because you still have all these carbon greenhouse gas emissions from the extraction of fossil fuels itself. They said, as long as there is extraction of fossil fuels, it has a very high carbon index and it's a bad thing. So what we essentially have done is what we're focused on is removing the extraction of fossil fuels entirely by making it unnecessary because the carbon dioxide itself is turned back into fuel. Um, does that answer the No, totally. And th thanks question. for sharing that, uh, that, I mean, the different uh, categories that, uh, you know, that you are playing on. So what are the challenges and opportunities that you see in the, in the market to accelerate, the, you know, carbon or greenhouse gas sequestration capabilities deployment? I mean, what is blocking it and, and slowing it down? Uh, is it because of uh, a need of new regulation? Uh, is the tech uh, for some, uh, on, on some forms that is too nascent and still like needs to be, uh, to, to be proven? Or is it like uh, economically not viable right now because the cost uh, per ton uh, is too uh, expensive compared to the, the carbon market price? Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. So my, my customers fall into multiple categories. Some of them have no carbon prices at all or very trivial carbon prices. And so for them, any co the cost of any form of carbon capture is too much. Uh, these are places uh, in third world countries um, or uh, even, look, even within the United States, while there might be a very high, car high carbon price in California and New York and Texas, the price can be you know, very, very small. It just depends where you are. Um, so uh, the, the carbon price is not uniform everywhere you go. That's, that's part of it. It's not, but, and also there is a um, technological piece where there are a lot of products on the market and companies are slow to choose which one they want to work with. Uh, and um, the other delay is that even in the European Union or in um, other parts of the OECD, a lot of the carbon pricing hasn't really kicked in yet to be as expensive as it's going to be. Um, these laws are phased in. So I think by 2030, we will see very aggressive investments in carbon capture. Um, we're in transition right now. The, the pricing on carbon is not yet as uh, strict as it's going to be over the next few years in this, in this decade. And that's going to drive a large part of it. Also, a lot of companies are looking at ways to completely do things differently. Or also, sometimes a company will say, well, if I have to pay carbon uh, pricing here, then I'll just outsource to somewhere else where there isn't. For instance, we're dealing with a customer in Pennsylvania um, who had a steel plant and they were facing you know, issues with carbon pricing over the next few years. And their executive board was essentially saying, well, why don't we just manufacture steel somewhere else rather than do carbon capture on our steel plant here in Pennsylvania where we're gonna have to pay carbon pricing. Why don't we just do it in Mexico or wherever where there is no carbon pricing. So. That's an important uh, challenge uh, to, to, to the market. But do you think that there's a real uh, positive impact in terms of like this carbon market and this, the, those regulations we put in place? Uh, or is it still like uh, beautiful greenwashing tools that uh, you know, big emitters can uh, leverage to say, yeah, yeah, we try to, uh, uh, to, to, to compensate uh, as much as possible. In fact, we relocate uh, in different countries and, uh, and we still emit in itself. Um, 
No, I don't think it's greenwashing. We talk to a lot of companies. Uh, we're, 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 we're talking with customers on a daily basis. I'll give you an example. Um, here in Israel, they do not have a carbon price. It's an OECD country, which does not have a carbon price. They're talking about implementing one over the next uh, 10 years, but at the moment, there's nothing really in place. However, one of the country's biggest carbon emitters, uh, ICL, the Dead Sea Works, which produces, I think, almost the majority of uh, uh, potash or borate for Europe. It's one of like the biggest suppliers of certain specific chemicals for the European Union. Um, they came to us and they're very aggressively interested in what we're doing because they said they can't sell any of their products in Europe within 10 years if they don't decarbonize their products. So they have an internal price per ton of carbon dioxide on their product that they have set up, regardless of local regulations, because their customers are demanding it. So that's not greenwashing. They really are very focused on trying to find a solution. Um, the question is just, can they find a solution at the right cost uh, that makes everybody happy? There's also an issue of uh, certification. Um, you can get uh, CE or UL certification on the performance and safety of a product. There is not yet a global carbon indexing uh, certification process for all these different products in the market. Um, you know, we went for what we're doing to the California Air Resource Board to their low um, carbon fuels um, program in order to get certified because we were looking specifically for some type of um, third party that we could then show to customers and say, look, this is what the carbon index of our process is. Um, that's just the state of California. They're not even a country. So it, it would be, there, there needs to be a lot more global collaboration, I think, to create a global market for carbon and, and a global sort of procedure for certifying these, these systems. So let's go deeper into the into standard carbon now. I mean, you already uncovered a bit like the, the story behind it. I mean, what is the, the, the gap? And you mentioned that uh, at the beginning of the uh, of the interview that you identify at first that in a way led you to the, the current version of standard carbon. I mean, why did standard carbon had to exist? So um, I've been working with real estate in New York City now for more than 10 years as an energy efficiency consulting engineer. And New York City is unique because the buildings in New York City were built more than 100 years ago uh, with uh, heating systems for a very, very cold winter. And these heating systems are state-of-the-art technology for the year 1920. So uh, they are very inefficient, very old, and it is extremely expensive and extremely difficult to switch these heating systems to anything else. Um, at, and the, at the same time, the winter is very, very cold there. If you don't have good heat, people will die. It's not to like a Mediterranean climate. So they, the building owners have to be very careful about doing anything new. It's a very conservative industry. Um, at the same time, these heating systems waste insane amounts of energy. They have boilers the size of the room behind me, uh, enormous, enormous boilers and steam distribution equipment that burn oil or natural gas and just spew tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And um, so when New York City passed this new law, the Climate Mobilization Act, basically saying that the buildings had to cut carbon on these boilers dramatically, um, they created a situation where they were demanding a level of energy efficiency that was seemingly impossible for these buildings from a cost standpoint, because the buildings could either um, pay the fine and go out of business, or they could replace the boilers with a new heat pump system that would probably cost more than the value of the building itself. So they could go out of business that way. But either way, there was no good uh, solution and so what I said is, well, what if we can retrofit the boilers with a system that takes the carbon dioxide and then takes off peak 
electricity from the grid um, when there's surplus and converts that carbon dioxide back into fuel so that the boilers, instead of taking natural gas from the Marcellus shale out in Pennsylvania and Ohio, instead they'll be producing natural gas locally from their carbon dioxide emissions and they'll do it with electricity on the grid. And that electricity on the grid can ultimately come from renewable sources because New York, the state of New York is deploying enormous quantities of offshore wind and solar at the moment. Um, and so then to check the premise, I actually went into the, um, the real-time market for electricity. And I was very surprised to find out that even in the heart of New York City in Manhattan, where you think there's infinite demand for electricity 24-7, almost 20% of the time, electricity prices on the real-time market, the spot market where the price changes every five minutes, on that market, almost 20% of the time, electricity prices go to zero or even negative. They pay people to take electricity off the grid just because of the issues of supply and demand. So I said, well, then this, this idea is, is a money-making machine. We're printing money. Basically, we're going to get electricity for free, and then we're going to produce natural gas, which has a value, and they're going to use it on site, and the boiler is going to be carbon neutral because they're going to stop emitting CO2 completely. So that was the initial idea. It was a, an email I wrote to a friend in December uh, 2018. Um, you know, it's been a, a very long, uh, bumpy journey between then and now, but that, 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 was, that was the initial concept. Um, and that's how it started. So on the product side, uh, if you could walk us through uh, the process uh, for, I would say, like an unscientist person, uh, how does it yeah. work? I mean, what are the entrant uh what do you get at the end of the product tell us a bit more like the the, the tech behind it absolutely so you have uh hydrocarbon fuel gasoline diesel fuel coal whatever it is you burn it and out of the chimney as you burn it you have a mixed gas which contains carbon dioxide water nitrogen soot and some other contaminants of different kinds. The first thing we do is we take that gas coming out of the chimney, we cool it down, <clears throat> and we remove all of the water and other particulate contaminants. We put that to the sides. So then we have just basically cooled, pure nitrogen and carbon dioxide mixed together. Then we take the nitrogen and the carbon dioxide, and we pass it through a chemical solvent this is a process that's been around for decades. And we separate the carbon dioxide from the nitrogen. Nitrogen is 80% of the air. So we just vent that back into the air. It's not an issue. The carbon dioxide, we now have an isolated pure form. So we take that carbon dioxide and we store it in a tank. It's actually very easy to store carbon dioxide for relatively short periods. To store it forever is a problem. Then you have to look for caves, things under the ground. But if you want to store carbon dioxide in a liquid form for a few hours, a day, or even a week, it's really not a technical challenge and it doesn't take up a lot of space. Um, <clears throat> then with the water that we separated from that exhaust in the beginning, we use our own electrolyzer to turn that water into hydrogen using electricity. And that's where 99% of the energy input to our process is, it's producing hydrogen. So we produce green hydrogen by electrolyzing the water that we captured from the combustion exhaust itself. Then we take the hydrogen we produced with the carbon dioxide that we've stored, we put them in a reactor over a catalyst. It's called a Sabatier reactor over uh, named after the um, French engineer, Jacques Sabatier, who, who invented the process more than 100 years ago. Again, nothing fundamentally new here. And <clears throat> the water, sorry, excuse me, the hydrogen and the carbon dioxide react in, together to produce methane, CH4, which is, uh, methane is the primary constituent of natural gas. So we produce pure pipeline quality synthetic natural gas from green hydrogen and carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, then the, uh, the natural gas we produce can be used in, to be burned in the combustion system, whatever it is, and then the process repeats itself. So as a result, we have a closed loop on the carbon 
no carbon leaves the system. And the only input is just electricity to produce hydrogen. Um, I know. One of the big, big advantages of what we're doing here is that we're not storing hydrogen. One, uh, the biggest challenge of the hydrogen-based economy thesis is that hydrogen is very difficult to store. It takes up a lot of space. It's very dangerous. It's very reactive. So in our case, the second we produce hydrogen, we use it. Basically, only when we have affordable electricity or electricity from a renewable source, then our system produces the hydrogen and that hydrogen instantly goes into the reactor with the carbon dioxide to produce methane, natural gas. And then that natural gas can be stored within existing pipelines, existing infrastructure. There's already a very mature industry built around storing and using natural gas. So we've basically taken a very challenging um, uh, material, hydrogen, and we've turned it into a material that's very easy to use methane, natural gas. Um, and we run that part, the production of hydrogen, we run sporadically. And then the carbon capture part, we run on a constant basis. So we're always able to 24 seven deal with the exhaust emission, isolate and store the carbon dioxide. And then only when there's electricity available for producing hydrogen, we produce hydrogen. And then we use that hydrogen instantly to go to natural gas, which then can also be stored very easily. So that's the, uh, that's the process in a nutshell. There's no Nobel Prize breakthrough in anything. It's just a lot of uh, very challenging engineering to integrate all the elements into a product that actually works. So how, how long did it take you uh, and your team to put together the, the, the first prototype and prototype? And what was the initial, like, uh, what were the initial challenges? I mean, how did you overcome them? Uh, <coughs> what, maybe what keeps you still up at night today on that sense? Well, look, I mean, I'll tell you, we're a hardware startup, uh, which already means that the capital requirements here were way beyond what was easy to raise from anywhere. So. I always have been and still am kept up at night by just the cost of doing this kind of work. It's just very expensive. It's not an internet company where all you have to do is pay people. We have all sorts of chemicals and equipment and materials and tools. And is that part, of, the cost part of just developing this is very, very hard. Um, the, so our first lab scale prototype we produced um, back in about the summer. Oh, and it wasn't even everything integrated together. It was just in different pieces. We demonstrated different pieces of this back in the summer of um, 2019. <clears throat> and then um, we didn't uh, really have a full um, sort of pilot scale demonstration end-to-end -end, from raw combustion exhaust to natural gas until uh, a year ago this past summer. So the, the summer of uh, 2021. So it took us um, a couple of years really to get to the point of just illustrating the concept. And now we have finalized our sort of alpha product and we're in the process of dealing with manufacturers and we've signed multiple pilot projects for implementation, but the, the ramp was very shallow. Um, we were dealing with so many different things that we didn't understand, different chemical processes, electrochemical processes, mechanical processes. We had to learn a lot. It was very difficult to find experts in each area that could help us fill in the knowledge gaps, even though the, now, even though the engineering was understood, it's so multidisciplinary, it was difficult for us to find the right people. Uh, and, I guess on top of that, we had the challenge also just of safety. I mean, one of the reasons why initially we were working in a university uh, laboratory, one of the reasons why we left was we couldn't get a um, license or approval from the university to work with hydrogen, which obviously we need to do. It's part and parcel of what we do. So we found a sort of, we ultimately rented an old uh, auto automobile garage that we repurposed into a laboratory to uh, do the work we're doing. And um, it's, it's, it's not simple. You know, when you tell people you're running experiments with hydrogen and corrosive chemicals and all sorts of other things, 
it's very easy to say no, and we're a startup. It's not like we are, you know, a huge organization which has infinite resources. So uh, these things have slowed us down tremendously. So speaking about the, um, I mean, the, the retrofitting of it, because that's one of the, the, the key aspects and elements of uh, what you guys do. It's like you mentioned that you're retrofitting like existing uh, uh, combustion, uh, um, you know, uh, facilities. I mean, like uh, it can be a boiler or it can be uh, different, di different things. So how difficult it is to uh, retrofit and adjust and adapt with your technology and existing uh, facilities. And, and maybe my next question would be like, who are your early adopters? I mean, who are the, the one that, that it's really easy now for you uh, guys when you arrive with all of those different components? Um, how does it work? Like who are the early adopters and, and how difficult and challenging it is uh, for an existing facilities to uh, be retrofit and, and, and adopt, uh, adopt your uh, process with standard carbon. Right. So we've designed the product to be everything inside a single shipping container. And we're focused right now on stationary applications. So our early adopters are, we have a coal power plant in Pennsylvania and we have a um, tire manufacturing plant in uh, Germany. And in both cases, um, we simply will show up with our shipping container. We will plumb a bypass off of their existing chimney. So their existing chimney is still working, but we'll just take a portion of their exhaust. We'll run it through our system. <clears throat> and out the other side will come natural gas that they can use on site. So for them, it's relatively low risk because they're simply giving us the space to run our system and prove that it works. And then assuming it does, then they would be able to just scale it up to a larger sized uh, facility on site. Um, but we're, we're working to make it as minimally invasive as possible, that we're simply taking from the existing chimney uh, and pulling from the existing chimney uh, the exhaust into our system and then feeding the natural gas we produce into their existing natural gas pipeline network. Uh, those are definitely, those are the early adopters, the people that are focused on it. And they're driven primarily by the need to decarbonize their process. So they, they are industrial facilities that they want to be carbon neutral for economic and other reasons. And, and so they're interested in, in working with us. Okay, so maybe that's a good uh, good time to speak a little bit about the, the economics. I mean, like uh, this um, methane that you uh, or natural gas that you that you produce. I mean, how do you compare to uh, the one com that comes out uh, out of the out of the pipeline? And and maybe what's the percentage that you're able to uh, by using this recapturing uh, system and transforming uh, the natural gas like. Is it like 100% uh, that goes back in and it's like an infinity loop? Or is it like 60% uh, out of the exhaust that we can uh, repurpose into, uh, into natural gas and the client uh, still need to, uh, to pump 40% out of the, the pipeline or the, the network? Uh, so maybe in terms of cost, if you can tell us a little bit more, like how do you compare uh, both of them? So, so the current product is 75% carbon dioxide capture and conversion into fuel. Uh, there's no reason why we can't be 99%. Um, we, we'll get there, just we're, we're focused on getting a product into the market as soon as possible. So the market uh, puts a price on tons of carbon dioxide captured. It doesn't put a price on percent of carbon dioxide exhaust eliminated. So right now there's, there's no financial incentive for any of our customers to completely eliminate their emissions, there's just an incentive for them to reduce their emissions significantly. Um, but there's no reason why it can't be 99%. And as far as cost compared to pipeline natural gas, well, um, it depends on two things. Uh, it, number one, it depends on the price of natural gas in the market. As, as you know, in Europe today, uh, the price is extremely high. So, you know, we can do this without even thinking about it because uh, Vladimir Putin has created enough chaos uh, that um, natural gas prices are extremely high and um, we uh, can easily compete 
on those prices with what we're doing. In the United States, uh, much less so because natural gas prices are much lower. But then the other variable that controls the cost is the price of the electricity that we use. So if we're in a place with very, very high deployments of renewable electricity, where there are days where the grid is just saturated with wind or solar power and the utility is paying customers to take the power because they need to dump the electricity off the grid, well, then our natural gas can compete even with the prices in the United States. It can be cheaper because uh, we're getting our energy input, our electricity for free, or potentially we're getting paid to take electricity off the grid. I mean, that's really what this is about is we're essentially balancing the renewable energy grid at the same time as we capture carbon. So um, we, uh, so, so the answer is it depends, I guess, you know, what's the price? The price depends. It depends on, uh, you know, can we be competitive with um, the, the market? Depends what the market is and it also depends what we pay for electricity. We estimate though, however, with, uh, a power purchase agreement price of around three cents per kilowatt hour, which, which is achievable uh, for current solar field deployments in Europe and in the North America, that we could produce natural gas at a price of around uh, approximately 15 to $20 per million BTU. Um, and, and that is reasonable and realistic. Um, for both places. It's on the high side in certain parts of the OECD, but it's certainly not incredibly cripplingly expensive. And it's much, much cheaper than the current price in Europe due to uh, the war in Ukraine. So uh, it's a reasonable price. And that doesn't even factor in the value of the carbon dioxide uh, credits, eliminating the carbon dioxide emissions. That's just based off of the price of electricity. So. To finalize a little bit like this, uh, to have this like more uh, section about the economics of uh, standard carbon, like what's the, the unit cost of to, to right now in terms of like deploying one unit? I guess like that's, as you mentioned, is the alpha slash prototype. You're looking to uh, to produce that at scale, but uh, how does it work? What's your projection uh, in, in the future? Okay. And yeah. What so... is the scale that you need to, to reach? And then... Um, Maybe um, I think that that would be uh, interesting to, to understand. What is the business model uh, that you guys have in mind? So the, there's no precious metals or precious materials in the product. It's a shipping container with stainless steel piping, pumps, valves, electronics, things like that. So uh, the sophistication of a single, single container is less than a automobile which sells for $10,000. So theoretically, if we manufactured these at scale, then we could, you know, each one could be $10,000, which would be trivial in cost compared to the value it produces. And I say one unit, one shipping container could easily handle a thousand tons a year of carbon dioxide emissions. So for a thousand tons a year of carbon dioxide emissions, you could, the target price would be $10,000 for the machine. Um, right now for the pilot projects, the price is much greater than that, closer to a hundred to $200,000. And that's just the, there's a huge difference between producing one and producing half a million. Uh, like I said, with cars, Kia produces half a million cars a year. So something that is very, very complex, they make very, very cheap. Um, we, we hope to get there. Uh, the business model for us is to charge, we, we aspire to own the equipment, to own uh, the machine, not sell the machine, and instead to charge the customer per ton of carbon dioxide that we remove from their system. So basically we would install our system at their site. We take, and they pay us for every ton of carbon dioxide that we remove from their emissions. And then we worry about procuring the electricity that um, we need and selling the natural gas that we produce. And so in all likelihood, the customer would also end up buying natural gas from us, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Okay, so 
what uh in terms of competition today like i mean uh in the eu in the us i mean who are the can you tell us a bit more about the your competition i mean how are you guys different or maybe better i mean how do you compare yourself uh to yeah. the market so the closest company that i'm aware of that's doing something similar to what we're doing is exitron uh in germany And they don't do carbon capture, but they produce synthetic natural gas from combining carbon dioxide and hydrogen. Um, and they appear to have a very <clears throat> impressive product and, and they think they're doing a few pilot projects in Germany. Um, and um, so the only limitation on what they're doing relative to us, as far as I understand it, is that they're not retrofitting existing combustion facilities. It's all for new construction. Uh, and so uh, they don't really approach the same market. They're more of an energy storage market, basically electricity to methane that can then be stored and converted back into electricity as opposed to a carbon capture plus energy storage, which is sort of what we're doing. Um, on the carbon capture side, I would say carbon clean Uh, they're the biggest, the best well-known carbon capture company that I'm aware of. And they treat, they've done projects all over the world, capturing carbon dioxide emissions and turning them into cement and other materials or storing them. Um, and so they don't remove fossil fuel extraction from the system, but in terms of just a straight carbon capture solution, I, th I think they're the most advanced. Um, On the energy storage side of things, I mean, there are thousands of energy storage startups. Um, certainly our focus is on more long duration energy storage because we're producing natural gas that can be stored for not just hours, but days or weeks even. So in that context, I would say um, high view power in uh, the UK, which does liquid air energy storage is probably, I mean, they're a startup. I, I don't know how much they're in the market, but they're, they're a startup that's definitely focused on the long duration energy storage space. I wouldn't compare ourselves to anybody that's producing uh, batteries of any kind because batteries just don't have the energy density to even be compared to um, what we're doing. So um, that's how I, yeah. Okay, so finally, what is the, the size of the, of the market opportunity? I mean, how, how are you planning to, to scale your operation and what are the, the steps to, to achieve it? I mean, what needs to happen and in a way, what's next for Standard Carbon? Well, the market is, uh, is infinite to the point where, you know, if I present it in an investor presentation, I look silly because they say, what's your total addressable market? And I say, I don't know, the planet. And then they say, well, nothing's like that. Give me a more crystallized number. Uh, but the truth is our whole society runs on combustion from cars to power plants, to industry, uh, and to heating and, you know, all of that is our market. What we need to do is we need to install the pilots that we've signed as soon as possible, make our customers really happy with the experience and the results improve that, uh, what we've done in the laboratory and what we've projected on PowerPoint works in the real world. And the assumption is that you know, if that goes well, then we'll be able to attract more investment and customers and everything else. And the whole thing will snowball and hopefully we'll grow and implement on a larger scale. But um, for us, the most important thing that we need to do right now is execute these pilot projects. And that, that, that's our whole focus. And if you can tell us, like, how many pilot projects do you guys have in the, in the pipeline and where are they located? We have two signed, uh, really three, two signed projects, one in a uh, tire manufacturer in, in Germany and one a uh, coal power plant in Pennsylvania. And then we have about another 20 uh, projects <clears throat> in the sort of advanced stage of proceeding. Some of those customers are waiting to see the existing pilot projects be implemented before they commit. Um, <clears throat> one of the um, customers we're, we're talking to who've been, who's been following us now for almost two years actually is the Israeli Electric Corporation and they have a fleet 
of more than 10 natural gas and coal power plants that power the entire state of Israel, they're very, very interested in decarbonizing everything with us. So, um, you know, if that goes through that, that'll put us on a map in a very big way to take a whole country essentially off line from a carbon perspective. And in, in this case, it makes sense since there's so much solar energy to do it. Um, that's where, that's where it stands. But, you know, every, every, every day is, yeah, it's very exciting. Every day is unexpected. You know, we never really, uh, uh, everything's very exciting. We try, we try to just focus on what we need to do. Cause it's, uh, you know, huge ups and downs. I understand. And, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's the journey of, uh, of being an entrepreneur. So, uh, last question on our personal side, um, you know, what's your personal opinion on the, on the climate crisis? I mean, what would be your words to people who are afraid of all those, you know, terrible news and already visible consequences of climate change? As I always ask, are we doomed? Uh, what do you want to tell them? Oh, I think that I, I, I'm against hysteria. I don't like hysteria on either side. Um, so I definitely don't think we are doomed. I understand people say that, oh, now the natural gas or whatever that's venting out of the permafrost in Siberia means that forget it, you know, it's over. doesn't matter what we do. Look, uh, the, we have, look, the, the world came together to defeat the Nazis defeat the Japanese in the Second World War. Uh, that was our grandparents' generation. Many of them are dying now, but we have an example in recent memory of global collaboration to achieve enormously positive things. Um, it, it, the, the United States did land people on the moon. It is very much possible and realistic for humanity to uh, deal with the climate crisis. Question is just whether we choose to do it or not. Um, and it seems like we are, frankly. Um, I, I'm very optimistic. The, the reality is, is that the majority of OECD countries are on board. Even the United States, which people think is all Donald Trump, it, it's very confusing because the, the reality is, is that the majority of the industrialized parts of the United States are blue states run by Democrats who have implemented carbon laws that are more strict than Europe. So even the United States is very much on board with addressing this and uh, it's going to happen. It's not gonna happen as fast as anybody wants perhaps. There probably will be sea level rise, but ultimately there will be a correction. Um, you know, it's okay. People that uh, think that uh, somehow the world is going to end, uh, I don't understand. As, as Jeff Bezos pointed out when he was criticizing Elon Musk's Mars colonization plans, he said, I, I promise you the most miserable part of planet Earth on its worst day is still infinitely more hospitable than Mars <laughs> or somewhere else in the universe. Uh, we... Um, we can and will contend with uh, climate change. But thank you so much for putting, uh, you know, so much effort into the into the balance, at least to to move uh, towards like uh, slowing down, solving, mitigating this uh, this humongous uh, problem that we are all facing. So, how can our listeners, uh, LPs, founders, investors, experts listening to the show can help you? Um, <clears throat> well. Uh, we, um, we we're always looking for right, the, the right people to hire. I mean, it's a very diverse group, but we're always raising money. We're always looking for customers that need to decarbonize their equipment and to explore commercial agreements. And we're always looking to hire the right people. Um, so wherever they are, it can be anywhere on the planet, really, you know, we, have, we're not just in Israel, we have a huge staff in, in India and uh, elsewhere. So um, literally anybody that wants to be involved and encourage them to reach out to us on our website, uh, www.standardcarbon.com. And, um, you know, we, we definitely would be happy to engage on whatever level 
is appropriate. So any question that I did not ask you that I should have for this first part of the show? Uh, any question that you didn't ask? Um, uh, I, I think that um, just one, one something that we didn't touch on that I'd like to emphasize about standard carbon and in the, in the energy transition in general, which is that, well, I understand this is tech for climate, but I believe that climate could be broadened to tech for uh, liberty. Um, the, the, a fossil fuel-based society is the single biggest uh, source of repression in the world. You know, Russia uh, exists and can oppress Ukraine only because it has oil and people that want to buy oil. Um, I know for us in Israel, our enemies that are all repressive, anti-democratic regimes, Iran, Saudi Arabia, you name it, they all are able to harm us only because they have oil and people that want to buy the oil. Uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela is oppressing his people only because people are buying oil from him. The sooner we can transition to a clean energy economy, uh, the sooner we can basically cut these folks out from the knees and literally, you know, live and create the type of world and society that we ideally would like. Um, that's something I'm very passionate about that I really feel, you know, my, my next door neighbor was killed in the World Trade Center on 9-11. Um, that was my first sort of introduction to uh, how oil, how the oil economy feeds violence. Um, I, I can't stress how, for me personally, how important it is that, yes, climate is a big part of this, but we, you know, we absolutely must stop buying fossil fuels from people that are not, do not share our values. No, that's okay, it. <laughs> but, th but thank you so much. I think it's a very important, uh, you know, point that you emphasize. Uh, thank you so much, Nathan, for your uh, for your time uh, and your incredible insights on the on the industry. I'm so excited to to see you know uh, many brilliant people like you uh, putting so much effort and time to move the the ball towards a, a better and cleaner world. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate tech ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbscamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.